Well, four years ago, it's hard to believe, um, we arrived in this place, and um, one of the first series that I ever started um, here was a series called Balancing Acts, and it was walking through the book of Acts and talking through the narrative middle, because the book of Acts is not about prescribing things for how we should live. That's not what the book of Acts is about. It's not a prescriptive, this is what the church should look like book. The book of Acts is a descriptive, a descriptive work. It highlights the history of the early church. And I think it helps guide us and frames how we are to live in the midst of tension. Because we all know that we face tension. And I think... The reason that I wanted to come back to this series is because I think that God brought me back to it to highlight a couple things as a way of encouragement, not to prescribe to you how I believe OVV should be or should look, but as an encouragement that within the tension of what it means to live in our culture, in our society, and the tension of what it means to live as community, that the book of Acts helps us propel forward and move forward together rather than separately. And so I'm going to be taking a look at Acts chapter 10 and a little bit of Acts 11. And the the main thing that I'm going to be focusing on and the main thing that I think I wanted to encourage you in is just this tension that sometimes creeps into our lives, especially as we think about being a community in culture in our world around us, is how sometimes this tension creeps in where we we have these exclusive truths that we believe, that we come to church and we celebrate and we acknowledge them and we know them quite well. For many of us, we've been in church for many years and we know what it means to say this is the truth of God. We know them. But then also, on the other hand, we have God's inclusive love. His radically inclusive love that is calling people from our world into his kingdom. And sometimes there is tension between that exclusive truth that we've heard and the call to be a part of us. And it creates um, a situation where we're just not sure how to walk through that. And I really think that uh, within Acts 10, and, and it really kind of is a great aside as well to um, Aaron's series on Peter to the Standing Out series. Um, We're going to be dealing a little bit with this story of Peter and how he's facing this. And I think it's a great aside. So you'll see and hear some connection points that series. So if you have not been following along with the Standing Out series, I encourage you to go and uh, catch that as well because it's a fantastic series. And uh, it really kind of, I think, will fill in a lot of the other details as well. So who likes downhill skiing here? Who is a... Who's the skiers in this place? So a couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of joining Tariqua in the CCA ski trip. My first time skiing, um, I think probably 15, 16 years old. I'd totally forgotten how to do that silly sport. I had no idea going into it what I was going to expect. And like everything in life, um, my life is a walking humiliation. <laughs> um, I tend to, and that sounds harsh, but it's funny to me. It's, I, I laugh at it more often than not. Don't worry about it. But um, So I'm in it, and I thought it would be really good for me. The kids have to go through ski school, and I thought it would be really good for me to stay with Tariqua 
during that time when in reality I really needed the lesson myself and I needed to remember how to use those things strapped to my feet. So the first thing that we did was put the skis on, check. I got that figured out pretty nicely. But then the second thing was you're supposed to fall over onto the snow and try to get yourself back up again. And I'm with a group of about 20 kids and then there's me. And um, so one of these things is not like the other in that group, you know. And uh, so everybody falls down, they're on their bum, and there they are, getting up. And I'm thinking, probably one of the easiest things to do, right, in skiing is to get up again after you're down. I could not, for the life of me, figure out how to get off the ground while these skis were on my feet. Um, I had that random moment, and maybe you have had that too, where you're actually sitting there, you're watching all these children around you get up like nothing. They're just standing up. Like, I mean, I would say 50% of them were up like it was, this was nothing. Where I was actually concentrating on which muscle group I need to use to help me get up. I was really thinking hard about what is going wrong here. Like, what muscles am I not using or have I never used before in my life to help me get up off the ground? Eventually, uh, the first attempt, fall back down. Second attempt, fall back. Third attempt, I get up and I do that sheepish look around. And by that time, about 75% of the kids had already been up. And about half of those were like kind of looking over at me graciously. But looking over at me wondering, good for you. (laughs) You did it. Congratulations. Um, And so from there, I went over to the bunny hill, which is like a little incline. And um, I went up on this, uh, whatever you call it, the uh, floating mat thing. I'm not sure what that's called. But went up on that thing and uh, scared to death on it because of the balance. And uh, I wasn't quite stable on those skis. We get up to the top, and it was, as soon as I get to the top, I realized that for the next stage of the ski school, that the instructors were telling the kids to keep control as you're going down the hill. Make sure that you're in control, that you're not, you know, that you keep the kind of that snowplow position where you look like you're getting ready to sit down on the toilet and you just got that, that hands out front and you're getting ready to go and you're snowplowing down. And so I thought, you know what, I don't think I need to go through the pylons that are there. That's what the, the kids needed to do. Um, I think I'm pretty stable on these skis, so I'll go down beside and I'll be okay. And so I start going down, and as I'm going down very slowly in this position, very exciting. There's lots of people coming up the hill, and I'm the only one going down this one section. And um, so perfect audience, great opportunity for me to look silly. And so I was going down, and as I was in this kind of snowplow position, the, the tips of my skis interlocked with one another. I couldn't get them. And so I'm like fighting like this the whole way down. Now, I didn't fall. Cue the applause. Um. But, man, did I look uncomfortable and completely tense the entire way down because I was trying to separate the two ski tips from each other, and I couldn't do that, and it was kind of wobbly, and all of my effort was just to stay up, just to stay, you know, in control of what I was doing. And then that, from there, I went up to the the big slopes with Tariqua and just realized how amazing some of these kids are, that they can ski down that hill and make it look so easy, like, you just think you're wearing these two things on your feet, it should be a pretty easy process to get down a hill, 
Um, but man, I was praying for my life the first time I went down there, the second time, eventually got a little bit more comfortable with it. But I was just so impressed by these kids who are just flying down, no fear, in control, amazing skiers. But for me, it was an interesting um, analogy of the tension that we feel when it comes to certain things within our life. And in Acts 10, we meet two people. Um, one is very familiar. That's Peter. You know Peter very well as a disciple. For which Jesus says the church is going to be built <laughs> with him. Um, he needs no introduction for the early church. He was an early church leader for the church of Jerusalem. He needs no introduction to those people that are there. And then there's another person that we're introduced with at the beginning of chapter 10, and that is Cornelius. He was a Roman soldier, a devout God-fearer. And when you read God-fearer in Acts especially, Luke is trying to pinpoint the fact that this is a God-fearing Gentile, not a Jew, but a God-fearing Gentile. They called them God-fearers because clearly in their repentance, they were scared of the judgment and the wrath of God. And so they are God-fearers. They have accepted the fact that God is greater and that they need to become a Christ follower in order for them to find um, peace and and, uh, eternal life moving forward. And so when Luke uses the word God-fearer, it's a specific term used for a Gentile who has accepted the teachings of Jesus. You couldn't have two more opposite people, like two skis on one on each foot, and you can't control where they're going. They're both designed the same way. They're both designed well and have a specific purpose, but they can get crossed, and there can be tension between them. And we have Cornelius, a Roman soldier, and Peter, a Jew, a Jewish leader, had no idea, never met each other, but their lives would cross in such a powerful, powerful way. So God appears to Cornelius because, as Acts says, his giving to the poor had caught God's attention. So an angel appears to him and and asks him to go and fetch Simon Peter. And so Cornelius sends some of uh, his uh, family, some of his brothers, to go and get him in another town. And it's a day's journey to get there. And so he does that. Meanwhile, unknowingly, we have the story of Peter in the vision that he gets while he's on a roof. And uh, you may recognize the story of the sheet of animals coming down. And you have all of these four-legged animals um, that appear before him. And that God says to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. From these animals. Peter, being a devout Jew, realizes very quickly that many of these animals are unclean. And therefore, he is unable to eat them based on the rules of diet on Leviticus 11. And so, immediately, he's faced with this incredibly tense situation. But we have to understand here, we, we think, okay, well, God's just saying, okay, well, go ahead, have a buffet. Go ahead and eat. Like, we're just changing your diet. But this is more significant than that for Peter. And we have to understand that as modern readers. That for God to say, go and eat these animals, he's basically speaking against the personal, the cultural, the theological, 
all of the dynamics that Peter was used to, that God was saying in a simple request for him to go and eat this meat, that all of that was called into question for Peter, Peter in that moment. Because according to Leviticus 11, that abstaining from these foods was a measurement of one's devout character before God. You were devout because you abstained from these foods. You were considered holy. And it was in Leviticus that it was stated that this rule was there. And the second thing was it was also completely normal and acceptable within the Old Testament law for a Jew to avoid a Gentile who was eating unclean meat and unclean food. They were actually permitted not to have fellowship with them for meals. And so you can see and imagine that in Peter's mind, that right now what God is saying and what God is suggesting goes against what I think, I think I'm holy and I think I'm devout. It goes against that. It goes against my cultural understanding of, wait a second, we're supposed to abstain from people who eat these foods. So this would just completely mess everything up that I've come to understand. It would mess up this idea of exclusive truth and what I've thought to be true traditionally. And now, God, you're saying that to go ahead and and eat this? This is not the first time that this is, Peter's had a situation like this. In Mark chapter 7, we read a similar situation where, where Jesus is talking and uh, the disciples are caught not washing their hands and touching unclean things. And uh, let me just find the right page here. And Jesus says this, after they were caught, they've been, they hadn't uh, washed, they were touching unclean things and they had not observed the traditions. Well, did Isaiah, this is Jesus, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold on to the tradition of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And it says in brackets in your version, you'll see this, that it says in saying this, Jesus declared all foods to be clean. So Peter, a disciple, this is not his first time, his first rodeo in seeing all of this food being presented as clean before him. So Jesus says this, and then God presents this, and clearly in Peter's mind, he still has not connected with what God is saying to him. We have God communicating and Jesus communicating, and he still does not understand. And there is a disconnect. Peter responds when he's presented with this idea of go and eat this food. He says, surely not, Lord. Absolutely not will I eat this food. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. 
the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. So there are situations like what Peter is facing where we are challenged, and and we're today, as modern readers, not oblivious to the same tension. How many people are aware of Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, that production? How many people remember that? Uh, It was from the late 80s, early 90s, um, a production that traveled churches. And uh, the main premise was that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin. And then now we choose between Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. And the production is just, our church did it for many years. And one particular time that we had it in, we had the youth involved. And what we would do is we would approach the um, angel at the gate. And the idea that they had as we were doing that is we were supposed to come up and approach the angel who had the book of life. And we were supposed to whisper where we wanted to go, heaven or hell. So nobody in the audience could hear. But then the angel would do this dramatic point to the gates of heaven or hell. Um, And so all the youth and, and Older kids got up to this, and this is the first night of the production, that the, the place is packed. The house is absolutely pl- packed. And uh, the first person comes up, hell. Second person comes up, hell. Third person, hell. And by the end of all of these kids, there were three shy-looking people, very unhappy, standing in heaven. Kids who are standing there just kind of like, like my mom made me choose heaven for this production. And everybody else, all the other youth, that they had turned the baptism tank into hell. And they had put a mattress in the bottom. And they had f- these banners, streamers coming up with fans blowing it up. And what all the youth were doing was they were cannonballing and dive bombing into hell. And so you would watch these youth one by one come approach the gate of hell and they'd go, cannonball! And they'd go in having a blast and then you had three people standing in heaven going, I wish I could go to hell. In our belief of heaven and hell, and don't get me wrong, I believe in both. There is absolutely tension that comes out of that. I read a couple other funny stories about that. One church who was doing Heaven Gates and Hell's Flames had everybody within the church, as they were coming in, fill out an information card with their name, their phone number, their address as they were coming in so that they could contact them after. Little did they know that the church took that information and the angel that was standing there shouted out their names. As they were sitting there in the church. Jonathan, heaven. Could you imagine being in a place like that and having your name called in that moment? And there was another story that I heard of somebody who was absolutely like trying to, asking online for healing from this production because the pastor, after talking passionately about the fires of hell, changed very quickly to, all right, now let's go downstairs and barbecue some weenies. Because they had a weenie roast immediately after Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. 
throughout church history, our understanding of heaven and hell and the divide between them has been used. It's not, listen to my word, I'm not saying it's wrong to have these theories of heaven and hell, but has been used to create rules of exclusion that we use to prevent people from being a part of community. Inwardly, we have two representatives. Traditionally, we've been, we've been given two options. A representative of heaven and a representative of hell. We have an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other. Our conscience. And when I was younger, I remember time and time again somebody saying to me, okay, you got to listen to the angel on your shoulder more often than you listen to the devil when you go through life. A representative ambassador of heaven and an ambassador of hell. And we better hope that we choose more often than not the ambassador of heaven than the ambassador of hell. And we struggle internally with this tension of what is my decision, what my next decision. Angel, what would you do? Okay, okay, that's great, that's positive. Uh, devil, what would you do? Oh, exactly, exactly the opposite of that. And we would have to choose which one we were going to serve, heaven or hell, in that moment. And outwardly, what ends up happening, because of this exclusive relationship that we have, and because of this tension and this fear we have about getting everything right, and these traditions that we hold on to, we have these exclusive rules that we create for Christians, for one another, for our world. A person who does this lines up with my exclusion rules so we can be a team. But that person over there, they don't obey those traditions and those rules. They're on the other team. And what that creates is a tension of us and them. That we're the club that's got it right. We've listened to the angel more often. We, we have this understanding of heaven better than somebody else. And even among Christ followers... You have tension between them because people believe in certain things to be so true that they create these rules of exclusion to prevent other people from being a part of that. But God says this, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. See, this issue with Peter was not a food issue. It was not a dietary issue. It was an issue of the heart. And later on in, in verse 28, Cornelius' team finally meets up with Peter and they go together to the house of Cornelius. And Peter says this to them in verse 28 when he gets there. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me, Cornelius? And he answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, and at three in the afternoon suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. 
He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And this is interesting what Peter says. Peter, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Peter, who confessed in Matthew, says that the first confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior was through Peter. I know who you are. Peter, the one who Cornelius essentially bows down before him, and Peter says, no, 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 I don't stand out from anybody here. Then Peter began to speak, and he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter, who had a relationship, a close relationship with Jesus Christ as a disciple. Peter, who had a vision of a bunch of animals in a sheet. (laughs) And God saying to him quite clearly, go and do this. The one thing that changes things for Peter, this guy... Is an encounter that he has with a Roman Gentile soldier. A person on the other end of the spectrum. And Peter, in an amazing confession, says, I now see you standing before me and that God does not show favoritism. I now see that this exclusive truth idea that I have is important, but it was given with this intention of God's inclusive, radical love. And what a beautiful picture that is moving forward for us. How do we live today with this same tension of this radically inclusive love? And this continual belief in exclusive truth that we have. The first thing we need to understand is that we need to see the world beyond our rules of exclusion. Jesus is not a demagogue and he's not a demigod. And what I mean by that is he's not a demagogue. A demagogue is a a leader who picks hot button issues and takes a side on them. Controversial side. Jesus was not a demagogue. He is God. It's not an issue for him. (laughs) He doesn't need to take a side. (laughs) He is the creator. He is sovereign. He is powerful. And he has spoken into our life the very real truth of his inclusive love. Need we any more proof going into Good Friday (laughs) that Jesus, our Savior, our Creator, dying on a cross, God so loved the whole world that He gave His Son to die for us. 
It wasn't about taking an issue or taking sides. It was this radically inclusive love calling us. And God is not a demigod, which means he's not a a powerful person who's not a god, but does godlike things. Sometimes in our understanding of God, in our traditions, in the things that we hold dear to ourselves as a community, as an evangelical church, we can forget that he is God, a living God, and that we are to submit to him, not just simply recite the things that he did. That we are to submit to Jesus Christ, not just recite the things that he did and accomplished. If he was a demigod, all we would be interested in is telling fun stories about what he did. But because he is fully God, he asks us to do what he says. In John chapter 8, 31 to 38, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you would say you will become free? Why would we need to worry? We've got it all together. We follow your traditions. What are we missing? What are you telling us that we don't already know? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. I know that you are part of this tradition. I know that you are chosen. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place inside of you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And listen to this carefully. This is interesting. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. The encouragement in this is that we hear things about what it means to be a Christian. Rules that we need to follow or things that we need to make sure other people know before they can have a happy life in Jesus. And the big question is, are we speaking of just something that we've heard? Just a tradition that we uphold. But Jesus says, I speak of what I have seen. And for... A first century believer, their eyes are the window to their heart. What you see is incredibly important because your eyes are that window that reveals where your heart is. And the question that I have to you as we think about how we move forward with community and with people that we meet and people that we encounter, are your eyes connected with your heart? Or are you just following what you have heard to be true historically, traditionally? The other interesting thing about seeing and doing 
is that when you, when you see something happen, when you really see something for the first time, you can't forget it. You can't shake it. There's something about when we see something happen that changes us. That's different than just simply hearing something. And so for all of us in these situations where we're struggling and trying to find our place in the world and trying to figure out how am I supposed to relate to my neighbor who's really annoying? How am I supposed to relate to my coworker who just simply makes fun of me all day long about my faith? What am I supposed to say at my school where I have a gay friend and they don't want to actually talk about God? Or sometimes maybe they do talk about God and say, I I really feel like there might be something there. I just don't know what to do. Or I don't know if I can accept the traditions of church. Because you guys have hated a lot of people. By seeing, it means that you're there with them. doesn't mean that you're agreeing with everything. But by saying that I speak of what I have seen with my father means that you're there. You can see with your eyes the people around you. You can see with your heart those in your community. And the exclusion rules don't put you off. Because when you see people the way that the, the father sees them, you can't help but love them. The second point, and very soon I'll, I'll close, is this, that this is God's kingdom. We believe that Jesus is Lord. We believe that he is king. Who are we to stand in the way? Peter acknowledged that. Who am I to stand in the way in Acts eleven seventeen to 18? So if God gave them the same gift, he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's referring to Gentiles. Who was I to think that I could stand in the way of God? And when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The the key words here is that God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is God's kingdom. And for those of us who live life through this filter and lens of hate and exclusion and separation from the world, looking to find reasons to judge others rather than love them and care for them and include them. The question that I have to you is, have you truly understand that it's actually not you that grants repentance? It's actually not you. We like to think we play a bigger role. But according to the word of God, according to Peter and what he discovers here is it's not actually our rules that matter at all. They matter, but it's not that they are the things that grant repentance to people who are in this world. Time and time again, I'm reminded of the people that I encounter in my journey. Been Christians for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and and some of those people are having a crisis of faith 30 years after. They have been a part of church their whole life. They understand the tradition and the rules. 
But the one thing they seem to struggle with and have a hard time with is, is God, I have followed your traditions the entire time. I followed the rules. And you look into their eyes and you look into their heart and you understand you can follow the rules and lose something. You can follow the rules and still have no connection with your heart. And the evidence of that is found in the fact that if you look at that person in your life that you absolutely despise and that you have given yourself an excuse to hate them back or despise them back, understanding a sovereign saving God means that you will listen to him when he says you love your enemies because it is my kingdom and at any time I can save them. It's not about us. Any human being on this planet, because of God's sovereignty, can be redeemed by his power and his love. There is nothing that can prevent that from happening. So we sacrifice and we surrender the rules of exclusion that we have created within ourselves that prevents people from being a part of us, being a part of our lives. We need to lay them down and surrender them to God and say, God, I'm sorry for the way that I have treated the poor people within my community. I'm sorry for the way that I have excluded people based on my own rules. And like Peter, Jesus, who am I to stand in your way? Who am I to forget that you show no favoritism? That you love us freely in your power and in your grace and love. And with this I close, I, I urge you to look around you as a community. Even now. To really take a good look at the people who are around you. Look into their eyes. There are meetings and encounters like the meeting between Cornelius and Peter that God has ordained in this place. To understand how our, our God who is radically inclusive works, we have to understand that God who calls you to this place has also called your neighbor here too. And you may not be going through the same thing. You may not be struggling with the same thing. You may not be challenged by the same rules of exclusion, but acknowledge the fact that God is bigger than you are, has a plan for their life. And like the relationship between Peter and Cornelius, when even though you may be at opposite ends of the spectrum, that God is speaking to you in a way that says, now is the time. For you to change in this friendship. Now is the time for you to learn in this relationship. Now is the time for you to see the significance in the person who's sitting beside you. 
and not treating this just like an opportunity to come to a service and come to a place where we just simply hear exclusive truth. But we experience the radically inclusive love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we live it out. We see it happening in our world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your truth. God, you are sovereign in this place. Holy Spirit, I come and that you would make your word visible to us in these moments. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the people that are here and the way that they care and love for one another. The way they care and love for their community and their world. God, I know that, Holy Spirit, you are working in our midst. But like in the book of Acts, we're not prescribing how we should live, but we're describing a way forward. God, as your church and as your kingdom, we must move forward inclusively. We must fight against the powers of this world that are looking to exclude one another based on race, based on religion, based on their ethnicity. God, we, re- we repent of rules of exclusion that are in our world. And we recognize that your truth is that, God, you are sovereign, that you are over everything, and that who are we to stand in your way? I thank you, God, for the future of your kingdom. I thank you, God, for the future of your kingdom. It is full of hope and full of love. And for the promise of everlasting life that you have given through your son, dying on a cross for us, what a beautiful picture of your wonderful love to us and wonderful love to our world. May you be glorified and in through our lives. In your great name, amen, amen.